So this is joint work, as Kisela mentioned, and it's work for the NetSilk 2 project of Eurostat, which has now reached its conclusion. Um, and so I presented the final version in Lisbon on the 17th of October, a month ago, and then we are simply finalizing uh, all of the papers from that project. <clears throat> so as you will know, Europe has a long tradition of counting measures since the late 60s. Um, in which, for policy purposes, um, people identify the number or sum of deprivations of different kinds that people experience and use them either to set poverty lines or to complement poverty lines um, by identifying people who were deprived in other ways. Um, the severe material deprivation indicator was the first county-based measure to be developed from the EU silk datasets which were sought to um, achieve harmonized data using a method of open coordination across European countries. Um, that process again arose out of a, a, an agreement in Lisbon. Um, and the EU silk data sets then gave rise to an at-risk of poverty relative income indicator and a material deprivation indicator, as it was initially called before it was severe developed by Ankhapeyu. Um, those two indicators, that was poverty and severe material deprivation, were combined with a quasi-joblessness or low work intensity indicator in the EU 2020 measure, which, has, which is now under revision, um, but which was adopted in 2010 to measure poverty across Europe in a multidimensional and harmonized way. The EU 2020 measure identifies a person um, as you know, poor by that measure, if they're deprived in any one of these three dimensions, at risk of poverty, a relative income measure, um, severe material, material deprivation, and now severe material deprivation, and quasi-joblessness. There was also a recent paper by William Nolan and Maitre, um, published in 2014 with the working paper version from 2012. And that's quite an interesting paper because it's the first paper to apply the AF methodology to the EU SOAP data set. And they use the 2009 data set. If you're familiar with the EU SOAP data set in 2009, it had a very rich set of new variables. And so the paper takes a lot of time in identifying and validating the structure of the multidimensional poverty measure that they developed from that 2009 enriched data set. And also demonstrating the value added to the county tradition, which focused on the headcount or percentages of people who are poor, but the value added of having an adjusted headcount ratio and the corresponding consistent analysis that comes with it. So in a sense, that's the history that we're building on in this paper. This paper is empirically a step back, uh, more crude than the Willen, Nolan, Major paper, but it's a step forward in that it goes into a dynamic context. So what we do is we try to analyze the kinds of analysis that would be possible um, by implementing our methodology using the cross-sectional panel data components uh, for all countries that have uh, data from 2006 to 2012. The EU SOAP database through that time includes 31 countries and 23 countries have uh, all variables in all periods, so we're able then to compare them. So the methodology is uh, very familiar for us, and it's a county-based methodology where you 
identify um, a set of indicators and weighted indicators and use them to create a deprivation score and then identify a person as, as poor if they're deprived in some weighted combination of those indicators. Um, so a second cutoff is, is set um, to identify who is poor. Um, and that is all, in a sense, been done before. It builds on the counting tradition previously. What's new is the measure, and the measure is the product of two numbers, the headcount ratio or percentage of people who are poor because they're deprived in a weighted percentage of indicators, and the intensity, which is the average percentage of deprivations poor people experience. And this structure then uh, enables some kinds of analyses that hadn't previously been done um, in the counting tradition. <clears throat> so the first version of the paper we gave in December 2012, the second version of the paper we gave in June 2014, and the third version in October 2014. Across those three papers, we've done eight indicators, eight measures, and run them for every, uh, every country and every period. The final three um, developed in consultation with the others who are part of this product, pro project and who have a greater knowledge of the European data sets and deprivations than we do, have 12 indicators. And they're the same 12 indicators in each of the three measures. All we do is we change the weights. And we change the weights by effectively maintaining a nested weighted weighting structure where each indicator, each dimension is equally weighted and each indicator within a dimension is equally weighted. But we define the dimensions differently. So in the first measure, we have 12 indicators defined in four dimensions. These are the EU SILK 20, EU 2020 indicators. So at risk of poverty, quasi-joblessness, and severe material deprivation. In measure two, we pull out severe material deprivation as a dimension on its own. The others are equally weighted within a dimension. And in the third, we pull out each of the EU 2020 indicators as a dimension on its own, meaning that one half of the weight of the entire measure is driven by the EU 2020, and one half is driven by the other three dimensions. What are the other three dimensions? One is education, one is health, and one is um, living environment. So this says the exact same thing in words. Um, in terms of poverty costs, <coughs> in the case of the first measure, we use a person has to be deprived in strictly more than one dimension or set of equivalent weights. So poverty cutoff of 26%, because each dimension is equally weighted at 25%. And so effectively, we're saying strictly greater than 25 or 26. Similarly, in terms of logic, this is strictly greater than 20%, and the five dimensions are weighted at 20% each. So a person has to be deprived in more than one to be poor. In this measure, we could either have used strictly more than one or strictly more than two, and this measure was implemented with a cutoff of 34%. So a person needs to be deprived in two of the relevant six dimensions. Obviously, we implement every measure for every cutoff. So this is the structure, and what we're trying to do is just illustrate the structure. But a lot of the problems with this work empirically, and the reason that we are not pushing it for policy, have to do not with the methodology, but with the EU SILK data sets, and particularly with the indicators. 
So the most familiar indicators, of course, are the EU 2020 measures, where income, the equivalent disposable income, is about 60% of the median. Um, Quasi-joblessness means the respondent lives in a household where the ratio of the total months that all household members aged 16 to 59 have worked, and the total number of mothers they, months they could have worked, is more than one-fifth. And severe, severe material deprivation means that they lack four of the indicators, so they must have achievements in six of the following to be non-deprived. Afford one week of holiday, afford a meal with meat, chick, chicken, fish, or a vegetarian equivalent, um, twice a week, uh, face unexpected, they must be able to face unexpected expenses to keep their home adequately warm, they must have a car, color TV, washing machine, and television, telephone. So they need to have at least six of these to be non-deprived in severe material deprivation. <laughs> but the indicators that are problematic particularly are the other three dimensions. In education, we identify a person as deprived if they have not completed primary education. But the problem in the EU SOAP data set is that they only have level of education. And primary school has a different number of years in different countries. And this creates severe incomparabilities that affect our analysis. In terms of environment, the person is not deprived if they live in a household with low noise from neighborhood or from the street. Pollution if they live with low pollution, grime, or environmental problems. Crime, however, is a subjective question. They are asked if they live in a household with low crime, violence, or vandalism in the area. But we know that that crime, subjective crime indicator is inversely proportional to the actual incidence of crime and violence. So we know that it is inaccurate, but in a sense we are we're trying to illustrate what could be done with better indicators. And housing, the respondent lives in a household that they're non-deprived. If their roof doesn't leak, they don't have damp walls, rotting window frames, or floor. Now, the health is the most problematic dimension. And just as a, uh, an example of this, in presenting the paper after the, the presentation where I complained about the health indicators, everybody came up with suggestions. And all of their self suggestions were contradictory. <laughs> so I don't know what to do about health in the use of data. The first is the self-reported health question. So the respondent considers her own health as fair or well. The second is if they self-report having no chronic illness or long-term health condition. The third, if they report not having any limitations due to health problems. And the last is if they do not report having unmet medical needs. In these cases, they are deprived. In the other cases, they would not be. They would be, they are not deprived, but they would be deprived if they report the opposite. And the response structures, I think, are well known, but it tends to be four, four response categories to the different questions. Some are different. So the problem with health is that they are subjective, their self-report, and um, how comparable they are across ages, much less across cultures, um, and years is, is uncertain. But so we're taking a deep breath and, and not pretending that these indicators are accurate, but squinting our eyes and saying, if they were, what could we do with these data and how could we report them? So we begin by just saying what percentage of people were deprived in each year from 2006 to 2012. And so you're not looking at the forest, I just put out here 2006 and 2012. So what do you see? You see a risk of poverty went up. 
joblessness went down a teeny bit, severe material deprivation went up. And so across the three EU 2020 measures, you don't see a decrease in poverty, and we don't see it either. But if you look at the other indicators, education, noise, pollution, crime, housing, self-reported health, you see a decrease. And chronic illness, marginally increases, morbidity increases. And we dropped on that medical means of the slide. Sorry about that. Um, so it's ambiguous, but you just eyeballing it, knowing that these eight indicators have equal weights, it would seem that there's larger decreases among particularly the living standard indicators, um, where health remains ambiguous. So the first thing, we don't try to do an in-depth um, identification of the best indicators. That is done in the Wheeland, Nolan, and Major paper. Um, extensively, that's the real bulk of that paper. But we just do two very simple descriptive um, looks at the associations and similarities across the indicators. So first we just look at correlations, and because we're correlating 0-1 indicators, they're primary. And we see four relatively high um, correlations between self-reported health and chronic illness, chronic illness and morbidity, and morbidity and um, self-reported health, and also between noise and pollution. The second association exercise we do is, is something a bit more precise. We take the cross tab of the two and we look for redundancy. So we look at the percentage of people who are deprived in both of the two indicators at the same time, or the number of people who are deprived in both indicators at the same time with sampling weights, and we divide that by the minimum of the two margins on the cross tab. So this ranges from zero to one, where one is everybody who is deprived in this indicator is also deprived in the other indicator, which has a lower margin, otherwise it couldn't go to one. And so it's basically a percentage of overlaps between the matches and the minimum of the two indicators. And we see a little bit of a different story. Um, so again, if we take the four highest, it's the same four. But what this redundancy indicator gives us is a sense of the magnitude um, of matches. So what we have is that in the highest match between self-reported health and morbidity, 55% of the people who are deprived in morbidity are deprived in self-reported health. But it means that 45% are not. And so it doesn't necessarily establish redundancy. That exactly the same information is present in both indicators. And so for that reason, we maintain all of the indicators, understanding better their structure. We did a measure where we only use chronic illness. Again, that was criticized. Anyone who uses is criticized. So we, we put them all back in. Um, so that's the structure. So what do we find? First of all, let's just look at the three measures. Uh, over three periods of time, orange being the middle period, dark blue being 2012, and the other being 20, 2006. And let's look for all poverty cutoffs from 0 to 100. These are the confidence intervals. So we have done standard errors using Tim Godemis um, Dupas, for which we are very grateful because it's not easy. And you can see that 2006 and 2009 are um, not uh, distinguishable in most of the poverty cutoffs. But you see that there 
may have been reduction between 2006 and 2012, but it's not necessarily statistically significant. So all the details are in the paper if you want to look for each particular thing. Let's pull out the four main regions of Europe, um, with the Southern Europe being blue and Eastern Europe being orange, Northern Europe being black. And we see that Southern Europe is always the poorest up to a cutoff of 40%, at which point it, it becomes statistically insignificant um, between Eastern Europe and Southern Europe in measure one. <clears throat> now let's look at the three years and the three models, remembering the weighting structure. <coughs> And, and just look at the results. Again, I'm just trying to do it at a glance. <coughs> so for measure one, the lowest poverty was 4%, and the highest poverty was 43% of people were poor in at least one quarter, uh, in simply more than one quarter of the dimensions. In measure two, it was 5 to 39% were deprived in at least 21%. And in measure three, it was 1 to 18% were deprived in at least 34% of indicators. We can see the at-risk of poverty. In the first measure, recall its total weight was 25%. And it's a little bit bigger than 25%. In the third weight, in the third measure, its total weight is 50%. But you can see that its, its contribution is larger than that, so it's disproportionately larger. And you also see that its proportion increases over time. So the contribution of the new 2020 measures is highest in 2012, because as we saw, they didn't go down. Orange is education. And in the first measure, education weighted 25%. But you see its effective contribution is 36, 37, 39%. So much bigger, which means a disproportional percentage of people had not completed primary school, which was a, a bit of a surprise. Um, we initially started lower, lower secondary, and then we came back to primary school as a cutoff. In the third measure, its effective weight is uh, one sixth at 17 percent, and its sorry, its its actual weight and its contribution has come down within those bounds. And as you can see, health um, and and the environment way back sort of proportionally, but they're not as as significantly distorted as the EU 2020 measures are. Now, you can't see all of them, but just to give you a sense of how these vary visually across countries, let's just take measure one in 2009, and we're ranking it from the poorest country, which is Portugal, to the least poor country, which is Norway, Iceland, Denmark, Finland, Czech Republic. And what you can see visually, and the reason we, we normalize it, we look at percentage contributions, is you can see this big V-shape of education, mm -hmm. that the education deprivations are highest in the poorest countries. And you can also see this little wedge of the at-risk, the EU 2020 indicators, that they are much higher in the um, other countries. So the health and the environment and the Economic indicators are much higher in the poorest, in the least poor countries, and education dominates in the others. If we look at the next measure, um, where education weights 
um, one fifth, uh, and material deprivation has a double weight. You see severe material deprivation in Bulgaria, for example, zooms out, and also in Romania, and also in Latvia. Um, so you see the, the effect that that has on severe material deprivation, but when you get against the less poor countries, it's much less noticeable. But you see that significantly changes the composition. And finally, in the last measure, where the at-risk of poverty, um, severe material deprivation, quasi-joblessness are weighted at 50%. You see in Austria, for example, they're weighted at 70%. And in Finland, it's nearly 80 So these are the, the dominant kinds of deprivation in the least poor countries. Again, Bulgaria, Latvia, Romania, Portugal are the poorest. So what this is suggesting is that when we look at the composition of poverty, clearly the weights on these same, same 12 indicators matter quite a lot. Um, and so if we're going to use an ESIL-based measure, for example, to allocate resources um, to different sectors, thinking quite carefully about the weights is required. Um, as a, a little bit of an indicator check, we compare the censored and the uncensored headcount ratios. So the uncensored headcount ratios we've already seen, but then what we do is when we identify people as poor, we censor or erase the deprivations of people who are not identified as poor because they have deprivations in less than 21, 26, or 34 percent of the indicators at the same time. And looking at the difference between the two gives us an idea of the deprivations that are not determining of poverty. Because if the raw and the censored headcounts are quite different, it means a lot of people are deprived in this indicator, but in nothing else, or not very much. And here you do see very clearly that in a lot of the environmental indicators and some of the health indicators, there is a very large difference between the raw and the censored, suggesting that a lot of these are spurious um, and they're not tightly identified with the poor. Uh, whereas the proportions of the unmet basic needs and the EU 2020 are lower. Um, these are only for three countries, because again, you can't fit all these countries. We've got the drowning in data here. Um, but we, we, we did them because Hungary, Norway, and Portugal um, do change quite a bit, or do vary quite a bit, um, in terms of the proportion of different deprivations that are, are, are censored. So now these are each of the countries for each of the measures in each of the years. So it's a spaghetti diagram, um, where the highest is the highest poverty. So that's Portugal, it has the highest poverty here. Here is Bulgaria, but Bulgaria's poverty goes down. Portugal and Greece, here's Greece, and it rises up a great deal. Um, here, obviously, it's lower because we have the higher K cutoff, but it's Bulgaria and Greece um, at the top. At the bottom, it's also um, quite similar across all of the measures. So what's quite interesting is that it's relatively robust. The measures and the ranking of countries are relatively robust to the changes in weights as well as the change in the K-Cup-Off. We didn't expect it. Um, and as you can see, there is noise, but it's not as much as, as we perhaps might have expected. One of our commentators um, thought that 
the NetSoak 2 should not publish our paper, should not publish our book. And it's quite interesting because they objected very strongly to the fact that we're showing that poverty decreases during the crisis. Now, clearly, we are not making any claims whatsoever about this paper because our purpose was really to call for, and I'll close with that in a few moments, not immediately, um, <laughs> uh, our real purpose was to propose changes to the ESO survey questionnaire, which have been uh, lodged and, and some of which I think will be affected. But it's quite interesting that that was a very strong reaction that poverty should not go down. We had a crisis. Um, income poverty has gone up. EU 2020 is stable. We can't show a decrease. Um, and so I just put this up to, to show you the height of these bars um, is the level of poverty by measure one, measure two, and measure three in the three years. So you see measure three went down to 2009 and then a little bit up, but no decrease since 2009. Measure two, not statistically significant. Measure three went, sorry, measure one went down in all periods. And then this is obviously the composition. And the interesting thing is that the contribution of education went down. Um, the three in 2020 indicators are these at the bottom. Um, and so you can track the indicators that did change across the different regions. And you can see that we're, we're finding the same story of no change in the EU 2020 indicators, mm -hmm. but we are finding stories of change in the others. We don't know if it's because of bad data um, or if it's an underlying phenomenon, but this is the kind of information we could quite interestingly look at if we had properly comparable data across countries and over time. Okay, so where do these poor people live? Looking at countries weighted one by one, of course, obscures the great differences in population. So the biggest contributor to poverty is Italy um, in every year, followed by France in every year, followed by Spain in every year, and you get the picture. So the biggest contributors in terms of housing the most poor people are not um, the poorest countries by any means. This tried to move, but um, my PowerPoint wasn't up to keep it moving. So I, I gave up on moving diagrams. Um, but what we do have is we have, for every country and every period, some bubble diagrams that move. But just to give you an example, countries have quite different evolutions of poverty. So in Portugal, poverty headcount went down and intensity rose between 2006 and 2009. And here, both headcount and intensity rose. So this is headcount, and the height is intensity. In Poland, it was beautiful. The headcount went down, and then both the headcount and intensity went down. In Italy, there was a decrease until 2009, then an increase. Um, Spain, no, which one's Spain? This is France. So France had also a decrease. First in a little bit of intensity, but primarily in headcount. And Germany had the other, where there was a decrease and then an increase. So countries have different migration patterns, as it were, in terms of the number or the percentage of poor people, and also in terms of the intensity of the poverty poor people feel. One of the problems of this, uh, the EU SILP data set, is it doesn't have representative data for migrants. And of course, during this period, there's been intensive migration 
from different countries, and we have no way of tracking the effects that the, the demographic shifts within Europe have on this poverty profile. So that's been a very strong call for us in the future that we really need country of origin information in the data set uh, and, and date of migration to be able to track uh, a little bit more detail and we need that to be representative. So um, the only way we can break down the EU SOC data uh, is by gender. It's, it's not, in most places, nationally representative by any subnational regions. So, but we were able to break it down by gender across every country. So here it is for every year and every measure. And the light green are female uh, poverty and the dark green is male. And so what you see is that in every year, in every measure, women were poorer than men. In some, it was, in some countries it was statistically significant, in others it was not, but on aggregate it was statistically different, significantly different um, uh, between men and women. So that's quite a story. And so here are some individual countries with their rates, their marginal rates. And the nice one is Portugal. Because in Portugal, uh, I think that was in 2012, yes, there wasn't any difference at all. So Portugal is with the poorest country and the one with the closest to parity. And but there are really some high, quite high differences. I believe that France is the highest, and with Malta, so it's it's quite interesting. I think from a gender perspective, and what's driving that is also interesting. Women. Overall, when we aggregate the countries together, they have higher deprivations in education and in health in every year. So orange bars are bigger for women, and the pink cluster is bigger for women um, in every year. Um, in some countries, like these, and these, again, I write them in the poorest. So in the poorest countries, women always have higher deprivations in education and health. But as we go down, um, for example, Germany or Sweden, Iceland, and Norway uh, don't show those patterns. Um, and so they have different configurations uh, of poverty between the, the different genders. I don't know why, so other people have to study it. But it's, it's giving us an idea. And then another way to break it down, which may or may not be representative, we're hoping that it is, um, is by age group. Um, and so on aggregate, you see that on the right hand are people who are 65 and above, so the elders. Um, and these are you know, a, a set of countries. Um, and on the left hand side of the young, the 18 to 24 folks. So what you see is that in some countries, um, the elders contribute a lot more. So poverty is much higher among the elders uh, than among the others. The UK has the highest among youth of all countries, um, which is, again, we don't know whether this is real because of the flawed indicators, but this is the kind of information which could be interesting because what we are seeing is we do see different patterns across different countries that it would be fun to probe more. And this is the rest of the countries. Uh, France has a lot of elder poverty. Um, so it's the highest of all of the countries. And what's very clear is what's driving this age differential. So again, we aggregate all the countries and look at the, the dimensional contributions 
and we see that for the youth, it is the environmental indicators um, and the health indicators, which are primarily, sorry, the lived environment indicators, which become pink, it should not be pink, uh, which are driving their, their contributions. And for the elders, it's education and health, which are driving their, their contributions. And it's very stark, striking in terms of chronic illness, everybody in the upper age bracket has problems with chronic illness. Everybody has problems um, with activity limitations. Um, so it does raise a lot of, of questions, both about whether to use the same age cutoff for all cohorts, even in Europe, where we were advised to use the same cutoff, um, and also what to do about health cutoffs that I'll mention in a minute. So, those are, in a sense, the results, but one of the difficulties that I keep mentioning are the results is that we can't believe them. So um, our paper really drew attention to the very strong need for the EU SILT survey to have harmonized definitions of health, education, and environment indicators that were properly comparable across contexts. So for example, the survey question has the highest ISCED level of schooling attained, and we proposed supplementing it with the years of schooling um, in, in the standard way. Uh, and that would enable different countries to uh, have a harmonized year of school cut off. Um, because at the moment with different years of primary schooling, uh, there will always be um, hard feelings about countries that have longer primary schooling, therefore higher deprivations. Clearly for self-assessed health, um, these indicators should be replaced with objective indicators or at least with more focused um, self-reports on health functions. Even the EQ5D, although it is subjective and self-report, would have more structure and perhaps be more accurate and more comparable. And clearly the perception of crime question um, does need to be replaced, so we were proposed replacing it with an objective indicator of violence, which draws on obese um, missing dimensions module on violence against person or property. Um, and so those were the main suggestions for the EU-SILK questions, if they would consider, as I think they are considering, um, looking further at the use of multidimensional poverty measures, including additional dimensions than the existing EU 2020 dimensions. But there's also some points to be learned in terms of multidimensional poverty measurement design when we use the individual as a unit of identification. So the EU SILK measure has some indicators like at risk of poverty or quasi-joblessness or material deprivation or living conditions that are identified at the household level. But our education and health indicators are identified at the individual level. And so that's why we say that the individual is the unit of analysis in this uh, measure, and that is why we are able to decompose it by gender and by age. However, there are problems in doing so which have come up. And the biggest one, and this is a complete puzzle for me, I have no clue what I hope you about me, is education. So education we use as a completed, if they completed primary school, um, and that is completely at the individual level, a stock variable, because our respondents are 16 years and above and it will be a very, very minor proportion of them who will complete primary school after being interviewed for this survey. So it should not change, but it did change. 
Um, it can change through demographic shifts, but perhaps not of the magnitude of changes we saw. So we're quite confused about the observed dynamics of this stock variable. But we also observed that we should not, in future, if we do individual level uh, indicators, use achieved schooling as the proper indicator of education only. Because if a government wants to work on adult education, lifelong learning, skills, and vocational training, the indicator of education would have to reflect those interventions. Otherwise, we're developing a poverty measure that cannot be changed by policy. And that's a non-starter. So um, that, is, that is something that when, when we use household level education indicators, if anybody in the household is educated, for example, there can be dynamics as new members of the household can fill that place. And so it's, it's much less of a stock indicator. <coughs> Another difficult question is health. What do you do for the health of 80-year-olds if it's different than 40-year-olds? Is that poverty or is that our natural destiny? Um, is it ethical to have different cutoffs? Is it politically possible or politically impossible to do so? But it would seem that the aspirations um, of some health indicators, uh, for example, if they move to EQ5D, might be different for different age cohorts. So that's a very difficult topic, one which would require medical expertise to address properly and, and clearly a, a lot of discussion. But I think it is something to raise. Um, rather than not to raise. And also, clearly, what this report has not done, although plenty of others in the NetSilk 2 project did, was to look in some depth on the EU 2020 indicators like Aussie joblessness for different compositions of households. And there's some very, very good papers um, on that um, that would also then have implications for our work and our analysis. So those were the main reflections that we had, some on the survey, some on the um, design of individual level multinational poverty measures. But basically what we tried to do was not to say what had happened to multinational poverty in Europe, but to say what you could do with a multinational poverty measure if you had good data. And to do so, we constructed another three multinational poverty measures. We reported the different consistent indicators that we could for them and we compared them over time and by decompositions um, insofar as it was possible by gender and by age. So that's, in a sense, what, where we stand at the moment. And I really look forward to your suggestions and your inputs. <laughs>